I invite you to take your Bibles once more and turn to the New Testament to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 16. This morning, we hope to look at verses 23 to 28. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 23. I remind you that this is the word of the living God, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. So let us give our attention to its reading. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and, because, and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue with the disciples and Jesus there in the upper room, giving instruction for his departure Jesus comes in these verses this morning to talk to us about communion with God. How it is that we draw near to God and are able to call upon Him as our Father who is in heaven. It makes sense that Jesus would turn to the topic of prayer as He gets near His own prayer, that high priestly prayer that would be offered up in John chapter 17. Last week, we saw Jesus care for his disciples in preparing them for the sorrow that they would face in connection with his departure. This would be immediately upon them as with his arrest and his crucifixion, his death and his burial. Surely they would face great anguish and sorrow. It would hit them again in his ascension into heaven. After his resurrection, of course, they would be overjoyed, and yet there would still be so many things that they do not know and fully understand. And as we discussed last week, that this has really been the lot of the church in this wilderness of a world. For we have all of the promises of Christ. We have everything that God has revealed. And yet, until that day when we dwell in the new creation, we dwell now in the wilderness and spiritual Babylon. We are strangers and aliens, sojourners, exiles, pilgrims. All of these words are picked up by the apostles to speak of the church in this day and age. And because of that, there will be sorrows to be experienced. But as we saw at the end of our passage last week, one day Jesus tells us that sorrow will be turned to joy. As Gerhard is Voss so aptly put it in the Christian's pursuit of the kingdom of God. Sufferings and trials are inevitable concomitants 
That is, they must happen alongside of that. And far from hindering him in his progress, they must become the means of helping him onward with the development in him of patience. Well, as I said, we are nearing the end of Jesus' discourse and the beginning of his high priestly prayer. And so Jesus turns to our passage this morning to consider what it means when the, when the disciples call upon God. John Calvin writes, he says, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. It is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. And so Jesus encourages his disciples when it comes to prayer. We want to think this morning of the form that prayer takes, that Jesus speaks of the purpose of prayer and the ground of prayer. As a first, the form of prayer. But before we get directly into our text, I want us to think about what prayer is. Now, those who know your shorter catechism, you know that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and with thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That's a nice definition of prayer to kind of help us think about what it is that we mean when we say that we offer up our prayers to God. The very first recorded instance of prayer in the Old Testament can be found in Genesis chapter 4 after they had been removed from the garden when their communion with God has been broken. For after all, prayer is communion with God. <laughs> Having been uh, uh, exiled from the Garden of Eden, the, one of the questions that would remain is whether or not the people could still call upon in the name of the Lord. It's there in Genesis 4 after, after Cain and Abel uh, after Lamech and all of the things that had taken place, we read at the end of Genesis 4 that Seth bore a son, or to Seth, Seth also was, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there, even in the fall, even in exile from the Garden of Eden, this communion with God was still possible God so condescended to his people that he did not abandon them, but rather called them to himself. And that is the story of the Old Testament. And prayer is central to that. The prayer is our communion with God. It's how we call upon him. It's how we express to him what it is that we're thinking, how we feel, what our needs are, as well as seeking his guidance, his forgiveness, and his favor. Prayer throughout Scripture takes many forms, and we know them, of course, many of them, because they're in the Psalms, those, those songs that we sing together each Lord's Day. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There are many kinds of prayer, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession and repentance. Prayers of supplication and intercession, calling upon God and asking for his help and for his blessing, seeking the Lord while he may be found, as Isaiah 55 and verse 6 commands. And there are prayers of lament, calling upon God in the midst of sorrow, grief, and distress. Those, those prayers are also modeled for us in Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 and verse 1. Words cried out by our Savior while he was on the cross. 
And so Jesus wants to speak to his disciples about prayer, to understand how prayer or, or, or the necessity of it, and in some ways, what is going to happen since he has come and now he is going to the Father. And notice it begins with this kind of contrast, this, this difference in asking there in verse 23. Look with me at our text this morning. In that day, you will, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. At first, it is taken for granted that Christ's disciples give themselves to prayer. That is that they ask God for things. They call upon Christ. And it is true that we've seen some of those questions that they have asked Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, and not all of them have been great questions. Remember, they asked ignorant questions. John 9 and verse 2, when they saw the man who was born blind, what did they say to Jesus? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They asked ambitious questions. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They ask so many questions of Christ. And notice that Jesus says that in that day, you will ask nothing of me, but rather you will ask of the Father. The point he drives home, I think, is that his disciples will make the time to call out to God in prayer. This is what we, what we understand, or why we understand that prayer is a means of grace. One of those things, one of those ordinary things that God uses to communicate His grace to us. And I don't mean communicate as so far as tell us of His grace, although we are told of His grace, but to actually give us His grace. The Word, the sacraments, and prayer. You might wonder the distinction that Jesus makes here when He says, in that day you will ask nothing of Me, you will ask the Father. There are actually two different Greek words that are being used here by Jesus that are both rendered as ask. The first one is to ask a question. And that's probably why uh, it would point us back to all those questions that they were asking Jesus. Whereas the word that is used to ask of the Father is to ask for something. But connected it with what we've already learned, the meaning seems to be that after Jesus leaves, the disciples will no longer have to ask him questions for information, because the Holy Spirit will be able to guide them into all truth, as Jesus has said. But rather, they will call upon God, they will call upon their Father in Christ's name for the things that they need. See, there's this shift that takes place then. They've had Christ with them as a teacher. They've asked him many questions. They've sought information, seeking to understand what it is he's doing and who he is. And it's remarkable, of course, that here we are at the end of those three years that they spent with Jesus, and they still don't seem to fully understand. I mean, you know, you'll peek ahead at the end of our chapter here, and there's, you know, the disciple says, oh, now we finally get what you're getting at. Now we understand what you're saying. And Jesus says, do you? implying, no, you don't. But there's going to be this shift. He says that until now in verse 24, you have asked nothing in my name. They have followed him as a teacher. They've looked up to him as a master, loved him as a friend, believed in him as the Messiah that the prophets predicted. But they had not yet fully realized that he was the one mediator between God and man, through whom alone God's mercy could come down to sinners through whom sinful creatures could draw near to God. 
But Jesus has been preparing them for this shift, for this switch, this change that's going to take place. There's no other way to say it, but that Jesus is the epic shifting reality in redemptive history. That prior to Jesus, that everything was one way, and after Jesus, everything will be a different way. And these are not distinct in the sense that they have no connection to each other. We know that's not the case. We study the Old Testament. We understand how the priest and the temple uh, and the people of Israel and the promised land all point forward to Christ and his church. But the truth is that when Jesus comes, there is a shift that takes place. Most notably, those who are Gentiles can now call upon the Lord, can draw near to him. And so Jesus has been preparing them for this shift that will take place. In John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, we read, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And in John 15 and verse 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It is true that the Old Testament saints called upon God through Christ by types and shadows. But now we call upon God through Christ, the fullness of God, the reality, the one who has come, who has lived a perfect life, who has died the death that we deserve, and who has been raised on the third day and is seated at the Father's right hand. To understand what it's getting at is the privileged position in which we sit. And we tend to have that backwards. We read Exodus 34 and we say, oh, I would love to see Moses' shining face. I would, I would long to gather at Sinai, even though, of course, they were terrified. Oh, I wouldn't be terrified, though. Even though they entered into sin, we wouldn't do that. Of course not. But the truth is, we know that we would. We know that, that, that the experience that they had was what God had given to them. But what we must understand is that what we have now is greater. For we call upon God in Jesus' name, in the name of the one who has come, the one who reveals the Father to us. For to ask in Jesus' name means to pray with the authority, the character, and the purpose of Jesus Christ. It involves, indeed, aligning our prayers with the will and the nature and the mission of Jesus. You see, when we pray in Jesus' name, it signifies that our requests are made with faith in Jesus, trusting in all that He has promised, seeking God's will and His glory above all else, for it is the Father's will to glorify the Son it's not a mere formula to tack on at the end of a prayer, but a way of acknowledging our true dependence upon Christ and upon God's guidance in our petitions. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way in question 180, to pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to his command and in confidence on his promises to ask mercy for his sake, not by bare mentioning of his name, but by drawing our encouragement to prayer and our boldness, strength, and hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation. And Jesus makes clear that there's going to be this shift in prayer and approach and calling upon God in Jesus' name. For there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as Paul will tell Timothy. 
This, beloved, is why we do not look for other intermediaries, other intercessors that might be in heaven. It is true that the saints in heaven are more alive now than they ever were on earth. But their gaze is focused upon the one who has called them to himself. And in prayer, that is where our gaze goes to. Yes, we join in prayer with the saints uh, and the angels who are in heaven. But we do not pray through them or to them. Jesus goes further and teaches about prayer as far as its purpose. Look with me again. We're in verse 24. Still asking you receive that your joy may be full. He directs us to ask for all that we need and all that he has promised. He assures us that, that, that we will receive what it is that we ask. And here Jesus then makes the promise that our prayers do not go unanswered by the Lord. He directs us to the fullness of joy. And this, of course, is where Jesus is pointing his disciples. And again, that context is ever so important because the joy that will be full will not come without the suffering that will be felt. The joy that will be full is not somehow against the realities of the trials that are going to come. No, it is often through those trials, as dear heart as Voss already said in our text or in, 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 our, in the quote that I opened with, it is through and with those trials that God builds in us what it is that he has promised to give us. And so Jesus teaches us that, that we're supposed to ask because the desire here is for our joy to be full. But for our joy to be full, our joy must be focused upon God. After all, if our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, then it makes sense that our prayers would move us in that direction. Now, it is interesting that Jesus says that your joy may be full, which, which as, as J.C. Ryle points out, it admits that, that the joy of a believer is, is in degrees at times. It may be fuller at one time than at another. There will be times when our joy seems so weak when the trials are going to overtake us, when it feels as though we're in the midst of a flood, and yet what the psalmist has always taught us throughout the psalms is that that's when we call upon God, that's when we reach out and take hold of Him, because He is the one who will hold us through those trials. That your joy may be full is not saying that you will get whatever you want right now, but rather that all things are working together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Further, Jesus speaks of knowledge. And here he says in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. This might be an odd phrasing that he uses here. In fact, it might be one of those figures of speech that are hard to understand. But the word that is used here can be translated as proverb or parable. And remember the purpose that Jesus spoke in parables. We read of it in Matthew chapter 13. It wasn't to make everything so abundantly clear. But rather, it was at times to conceal things from people. 
Perhaps we can say that in the entire uh, upper room discourse that Jesus has spoken in figures of speech, in proverbs, in parables, in my Father's house are many rooms, he says at the very beginning. He has spoken all the way up to the words concerning in our last text, the woman giving birth. The spiritual meaning of the discourse is wrapped then in various parables and proverbs. But that is coming to an end, Jesus says. Why is it coming to an end? Because, well, first of all, we would say that Jesus, in his mercy, did not just pour out upon them the anguish of what they are about to experience. That is, his own arrest, his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. Yes, he has told them of it, but he has not poured it out upon them. He has not focused their attention upon it, that it has broken them. But rather, he has spoken to them in, 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 in figures of speech. And yet that is coming to an end. There comes a time when we have to put away childish things and we must, we, we must do the, the, the work that is before us. We must walk the path that is before us. This is one of the reasons why uh, uh, pithy spiritual platitudes are, are, are rarely helpful. What we need is the deepness of the Word of God and the reality of the mediating Savior and His presence by His Spirit to sustain us through those moments. And that is exactly what Jesus is teaching them. It's how He is preparing them for what is to come. So there's going to be joy, He speaks of. There's going to be knowledge. And look at the focus upon God. It's, it's really about knowing God. He says, but, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. We can say that this is the whole point that the author writer, the, the, the gospel writer John, has focused our attention on Christ's coming. This is the reason that Jesus comes from heaven to earth, but to reveal, it is to reveal the Father. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Remember that Jesus is the Word who was with God and who was God. And that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1 and verse 14. When Philip says, show us the Father and it is enough for us. In John 14, Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus comes to reveal the Father. Why? For the very reason that John has, 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 has been pushing us to understand, and this is the most mysterious reality that we find in Scripture, is that Jesus and the Father are one. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as, he, as Paul says in Colossians 1 and verse 15. That He is the radiance of the glory of God, and He is the exact imprint of His nature. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, Jesus reveals God and he says that he will tell them plainly of the Father. And this is an important point to consider for Jesus reveals the Father and he would do this plainly for the disciples. Now perhaps this is a reference to that time between the resurrection and the ascension. Those 40 days that Jesus went with his disciples that he appeared to them many times in various settings and among many groups. Undoubtedly, at that time, Jesus taught them many things. But I also believe it speaks to the ongoing work of Christ 
by His Spirit to reveal the Father to His people. For many believe that they know the Father because they think of Him as great and almighty and all-hearing and all-wise and eternal. But they think no further than that. But to know Him rightly, we must know Him in Christ. That is, we must know Him as just and the justifier of the sinner who believes in Jesus. As the God who sent His Son to suffer and to die for the sake of sinners. As God who in Christ is reconciling the world to Himself. As God who is specially well pleased with the atoning sacrifice of His Son. You see, you cannot know the Father apart from the Son. And prayer then has as its general goal the revelation of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why our prayers are triune prayers. We do not fall into that trap of becoming functional Unitarians. For there's only one person of the Godhead upon whom we focus. No, the Son reveals the Father, and He does so through the work of the Spirit. And this is an ongoing, continual revelation. This is something that we learn and grow in day after day after day after day. And how is Jesus saying that we learn it? It is through prayer. We see the form of prayer, the purpose of prayer. Lastly, note the access, or, or the ground of prayer, beginning in verse 26 with the access. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Christ's work of mediation and intercession has something very particular and important in view. It is access to God. And this is one of the amazing realities of what it means to be in Christ. For remember what it is that we must have in order to approach God. Why around Sinai are the people trembling and standing far off, but that God is holy and His holiness is revealed in thunder, in lightning, in fire, and in cloud, and the people tremble and will not go near. For as the psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Only the pure have access to God. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, In that day you will ask of my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For we do not go through Jesus as some kind of, as some kind of conduit, as though we stand far off, but rather in Christ we are brought near. That in the Old Testament, there was one day and one person who could come near to God in the Holy of Holies. But what, what Jesus is saying now is that that reality of that one person is now fully given to each one of us. That we, as Peter says, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Whereas Paul says in Romans 5.2 that through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And Jesus is, is very clearly pointing out that we ourselves now are able through Christ to draw near to God. 
not as those who stand far off, afraid, unable to approach Him, but rather as those who go to our Heavenly Father through Christ, knowing that He receives us for Christ's sake. And through Jesus Christ, we gain new and direct access to God the Father. At the temple veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies when Jesus dies upon the cross is torn in two, signifying that the way to God is open, that we can approach God confidently and boldly, not through our own merit, but through faith in Christ and the grace of God, as Hebrews 4 verse 16 teaches us. It is access that is not limited to a specific time or a specific person, but is available to all who believe in Christ, giving us the privilege to draw near to God. Why? Well, that's the second grounds that Jesus speaks of here. In verse 27, for the Father himself loves you. For the Father himself loves you. The disciples of Christ are the beloved of God himself. Christ not only turned away God's wrath from us, and brought us into a covenant of peace and reconciliation, but he purchased God's favor for us. And he brings us through Christ into that covenant relationship with him. This is a great truth upon which we ought to meditate often. We are quick to believe that Jesus loves us, for he died for us. But what of the Father? Yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God gave Christ for His beloved people. And why is it that we struggle with that so much? Why is it that we find ourselves so easily doubting God's love when Jesus says it so clearly? There's so many reasons. And we don't have time to go into them all, but I just want to just think of a couple First, I think that this is the great truth or the great lie that has been put forward from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? This, of course, is Satan's attempt to undermine God's word among, uh, among his people, that is, among Adam and Eve. We can too easily import onto a perfect God our experiences from imperfect people. We find ourselves so easily thrown off because of the lack of love that, that others might show us that we think that there's no way that God can be as true and pure and perfect as His Word promises. Further pain can cloud our thoughts and our feelings towards God. Or maybe just God's gracious love can seem too good to be true. Charles Hodge writes this. He says, The great difficulty for many Christians is that they cannot persuade themselves that God loves them. And the reason why they cannot feel confident of God's love is that they, they know that they do not deserve His love. How can the infinitely pure God love those who are defiled with sin, who are proud, selfish, discontented, ungrateful, and disobedient? This, indeed, is hard to believe, he says. If our hope of God's mercy and love is founded on our own goodness, it is a false hope. We must believe that His love is free, mysterious, without any known or conceivable cause, certainly without the cause of the loveliness of its object. 
I know I've already cited Gerhard Voss, but he has this, this great line that I, 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 I think of often. He says, the greatest proof that God will never stop loving you is that he never began. For God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal, and all that he is is eternal. And so if he has loved you for any moment, he has loved you for all eternity. And the evidence of that, of course, is that he gave his son. That's our last ground here in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving, and going, leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is not just laying out his GPS. This is what I've done, and this is what I'm getting ready to do. No, he's speaking, of course, of his, reconcil- of his reconciling God's people to himself. That when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. This is why it matters that there is, that, that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. For he is the one who reconciles us to God. He is the one who enables us to draw near before God. Indeed, it is through Christ that we can run to God in prayer to seek His blessing, His forgiveness, and His care. I didn't know that He was working within us. This, Jesus prepares His disciples to understand as He gets ready to depart. He is leaving them. He is going to the cross and from there to the grave and eventually to glory. This was a sorrow to them, but without this course being finished, reconciliation would be incomplete. For he could not be our mediator who ever lives to make intercession for us unless he ascends to the Father. We would not have access to the Father nor the knowledge of God's love for us if Jesus did not go and send the Spirit to dwell within us. How is it that we come to possess all of these great truths that is to be encouraged in them but to turn to our God in prayer? The ordinary means of grace that He gives to us. That which is available to us when we're in our lowest or in our highest. That which is open to us whether we are alone or with others. That which we have the privilege to go before God over and over and over again. To seek His care and his blessing, to know that he is working in us, that our joy will be full, to know that his love, his love is what he gives, and he shows this to us, proves it to us by giving us Christ. Let's pray.